Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast. Gosh, it feels like I'm back with old friends. Even though I don't really see people in person very much, I feel like I'm talking with my friends. I don't feel like I'm really sitting in my closet like I actually am. Instead, today, I'm talking with my good friend and often co-host, Hillary Allen. Welcome, Hillary. Hey, Buzz. So happy to be here. Yeah, it's really good to be on the show again with you. And I'm going to give you a little more introduction than I normally mm -hmm. do. Uh, because our topic for today is bad training advice, which is a big topic. It's kind of an easy topic. We can go on for hours and hours. But <laughs> you are qualified on this one because you are currently a coach for Charmin Ultra Coaching. That would be Ian Charmin, who's won Leadville 100 multiple times. <laughs> and you course, wrote a book. I'm going to link to this in the written show notes. And so you have really had to pull yourself back from the brink. I mean, you had, <laughs> you know, literally life-threatening injuries. And so that gives you a lot of credibility and knowledge on training advice. And also, your coaching background goes way back. I'm quoting from your website. You pursued a degree in organic chemistry, then earned a master's degree in neuroscience and physiology and structural biology from the University of Colorado. So I'm just going to editorialize here. There's a lot of coaches out there, and sometimes they're just people who have run a lot and have no other credential. I personally find that a little alarming, but you do have academic credentials, which I appreciate. Thank you. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I do think you gained a lot of experience from coaching through 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 actually running and racing. So I think that that's something obviously that, you know, certain runners like I don't know if I would respect them as much as a coach if, if they didn't run themselves, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be this great coach. I think you have to have a balance and kind of understand the science. And, um, you know, I've spent some time um, before before working with Charmin Ultra, I was coaching over at CTS and, you know, had undergone some training over there um, for coaching. And even before then, I had, you know, done different coaching outside of, um, you know, an official kind of company and had have done a lot of reading. I'm a super nerd. So I think I order a bunch of like training books and I really, I really like to learn. And actually, you know, when I was coming back from the brink of my injury is when I learned a lot about coaching in particular, um, you know, how, you know, how to diverse, diversify yourself as a runner. Um, and I think I almost debunked a lot of kind of training myths that I held in my mind, um, kind of in learning through that process. So, yeah. Well, let's hear some of these training myths. Let's just start with you. What do you hear a lot that you just don't think is right? You know, so one of the first things that I, that I thought of when I first started running was that you have to run like hundreds and hundreds of miles a week in order to prepare yourself for running these long distance races in the mountains. And, um, you know, I wouldn't recommend that right away. Um, and I don't <laughs> think I would actually recommend it in general because I think running is very hard on your body. Um, and the more that I've gotten into running, you know, I actually, I'm not a runner that runs hundred miles a week. I run maybe 70 on average, um, in my peak training weeks. And I supplement that with a lot of other stuff. And I think I'm, you know, I've been some of, uh, the fittest I've ever been. Well, that's a good call. That, that is a huge part of the sport, particularly ultra sport is high volume run forever. Um, 
and of course, there's certain people in the sport who've done that. And then three years later, they're not doing that. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I definitely know that. And I think, I mean, I think there's certain people that can get away with it. And I think, um, arguably, if you look kind of throughout the history of ultra running, men can get away with it for longer periods of time than maybe women. Um, but I think at one at one point, I think I've always called it like a two year kind of um, flame uh, for, for women in the sport who run an insane amount of miles, train a whole bunch, and then, you know, have two years of grid performances and then they just can't maintain it anymore. And then they have to really kind of change. Um, I mean, but yeah, I think it's really sexy in, in, in ultra running to think that, Oh, well we're, you know, we're running these long distances. We have to spend all of these hours and all of these miles on our feet all of the time to prepare. And there's this whole idea of like one of my, the, my least favorite um, <laughs> bad training advice is more is better. <laughs> And specifically more running is, is better. And there's two things we can kind of talk about that, but I, I disagree. So I'll let you take the first stop at that one. What do you think buzz is more better? (laughs) No, no. I think the science on that is, uh, is kind of tuned itself up, hasn't it? I think most coaches are not into that. David Roach has been doing a lot of articles recently for trail runner magazine. He's kind of become somewhat prominent and he trains, some ultra runners as well as marathon runners. And he, he just doesn't do that. He he notes that you really have to recover from each effort in order to have the training adaptation take place. If you don't recover from the efforts and that there is no training adaptation, you just get tired, (laughs) which isn't the same thing. I also noticed that Iliad Kipchoge, you know, the, the world's best marathoner in history after a marathon he takes like a month off then he starts off doing just some exercises it's very interesting so it's uh it's, it's kind of fun reading that more is not better so here's something that i've been noticing um i've been hearing a little bit about is that people not just more is better but just running as well and so it's kind of interesting. Obviously, you have to be specific. You have to be specific at what you do. If you want to run roads, you really should practice on roads, mountains, on mountains. But there's this aspect about technique. Every other sport, you practice technique. Isn't that interesting? Every other sport I'm aware of, you know, it's from basketball to tennis. I do a lot of paddling. Boy, I work on form all the time. And running, people don't work on form. They tend to just run. So it becomes this pure cardiovascular test. But uh, I think that's a little, I think it's kind of missing something there because there's a tremendous amount of efficiency gained through efficient stride and the neuromuscular response there. For example, if you're going downhill, prob- up to from 50 to 75% of your energy is breaking, slowing yourself down. Now, if you had really good form and you could reduce that to 20 to 20 to 50%, look at how much energy you would save. And so I think uh, working on technique and form in running is actually fairly important. Yeah. And, you know, so something that I think that's a great point. And I think uh, especially early on in my running career is something I didn't even really focus on. Right. It's like running can be so natural, but you don't know until you get these almost you know, these, um, injuries that something might be off. And 
I think it's running form, but I think it also goes into kind of strength training. I know Buzz, you and I both really, really like that. But I mean, I think of all of the track runners, like they're doing drills, they're doing like warm ups every time before they go out for a speed work. And why aren't ultra runners doing that? Now, you know, I've read a lot of a lot of articles about the importance of like stretching, like having, you know, uh, full range of motion and, you know, flexibility of your muscles. Um, and the data, it's kind of a toss up, like whether stretching actually does, you know, benefit, especially endurance runners, because we benefit from having kind of a more um, compact stride, right? We don't need the full springiness or the full range of motion because we're not running super fast <laughs> like sprinters do. So maybe we need a little bit less kind of perfect form, right? Because our form breaks down over time. But I do think it's really important. And I do think that the longevity of a runner and their career can actually um, increase if they incorporate you know, proper form, but also like mobility and, um, and also strength training. And I think for me, that's where my running changed because as soon as I started to incorporate strength, I remember my, my physical therapist, uh, my PT, he, he, like at first when I came in there, I didn't know how to properly like do a one-legged squat. Um, and, running is just a series of jumps and one-legged motions. And I, you know, I was putting extra strain, not really using my hips or my glutes, which are the biggest muscle group in the body. So unless you know how to do that and isolate it in the gym, how are you supposed to do it when you're getting tired at mile 50 in a hundred mile race? Um, so, you know, I think, I think generally speaking, if from an hour's perspective or a mile's perspective in training, if you can, if you can, you know, spend 20% less time running and replace that with strength work, I think you're going to be faster at running and better at do it. You th- do you think this is more or the same level of importance for females as it is for males? I actually think it's more important for females because we don't have, we don't have as much muscle mass as men do. And I also think that after a woman turns about 30, like generally speaking, bone mass actually starts to, um, kind of decrease, uh, as well as muscle mass. And so the really running, right. It, it's not enough to maintain that, that structural, um, like that pull and that strain on the muscles, um, especially the axial spine. So that's lifting weights above, you know, um, you know, on your shoulders, like squats, like, you know, um, things like that, that kind of load the axial spine, um, pull-ups, um, that kind of stuff is really important for, especially for women. And because we don't have as much muscle mass in general, um, and I think it, it just helps you stay stronger, um, longer, and, and also in kind of longer in, you know, the relative sense of as running a race as well. Right. Well, speaking from a person of the older persuasion, as we may gently call it, yeah, times two, because there's a particular enzyme that processes protein and develops muscle. And as anyone gets older of any gender, that enzyme decreases in your bloodstream. You have less of it. And so you are utilizing less protein. So you have to do, well, probably two things, intake more protein dietarily, but also absolutely work on strength. When I was younger, I never did it, partially because I didn't like to do it. I really liked to run, so we do what we like. But boy, after about, uh, starting about 15 years ago, I go to the gym every winter, and it, it's a big deal. And I actually feel pretty good in the spring, and sometimes by fall, not so much, because I stop, I don't go in the gym during the season. So I agree. I think strength training 
and you just mentioned is probably more important for females. And as you age, it becomes extremely important. Yeah. Some factors maintain with age, but strength and pliability are two that plummet. Right. And I think also, like you said, I mean, as you're talking like 15 years ago, so what you're like, you know, 45. Um, and uh, right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, and also I think it's, it's exactly what you're talking about with form. If you actually have muscles to support yourself, like some of the most common things I see, um, like as a, <laughs> this might sound like I'm like judgmental on the trails, but if I see someone running and I see their knees caving inward, like some of that can be improper running form, but a really a main indication, it's weak glutes and runners are like, you know, I have some big quads. You've seen my quads, right, Buzz? Yep. <laughs> I have I have muscles, but like... <laughs> I, I've I seen your quads as you're pedaling away from me on the uphills. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but I also have a butt. So maybe you just don't, don't answer that question, Buzz, if I have a butt. But like the glutes are really important. And I think runners are notorious for having tiny butts and these huge quads. And that means that they're overcompensating. And it's like, if you learn your, how to use your glutes, which are a very important muscle group and very important for running and to have a natural running form, you need to, you need to like go see your PT and get in the gym and, and figure out how to do a proper squat and especially like a single, a single leg one too. This is good. So we have strength just as injury prevention and for ultras to keep you, you know, maintaining good form late in an event, but also there's the imbalances. There's a technical aspect to strength. You've identified a few things like glutes are a classic one. A lot of runners get upper hamstring injuries, don't they? They get that uh, tendinosis in the upper hamstring and they might roll on the ball. They might get a foam roller, but really what helps that one is to engage the glute. So you're taking that strain off of it. And so you're rotating, not like from, you know, down uh, kind of below your crotch, but you've got a little more rotation from your waist. So you're, you're engaged your pelvis there. And that you mentioned PT here a couple of times, Hillary. So you went to someone who could analyze this and I, I'm guessing gave you a set of exercises to help balance out your strength profile. Right. And this is, you know, this is like a gait analysis, right? And and working with someone and I, I had certain injuries. So like, you know, figuring out how I could, how I could, you know, and like work through around those injuries and then deal with muscle compensations that were causing something. Um, so yeah, it's kind of the gait analysis is a really, um, is a really important thing there. Um, and yeah, I mean, like we mentioned, like, um, you know, injury prevention and, and this whole thing. I also think it's really, I think it's really important to know. I mean, you mentioned earlier that, you know, um, some of the best marathoners in the world, they're only, they're taking like months off after a race. Well, usually the best marathoners, they're only racing twice in a year. And ultra marathoners, like we have this menta- mentality that we need to race like you know, 500 mile races in a year in order for it, you know, we can do that all year. And we're chasing this like fitness to be in top form at all points in the year. And I think that that's just not realistic. And so something that I, that I think is, a, um, you know, a good training habit is to not, is to kind of have an off season and, and during that off season to lift more heavy weights. And it's okay if you gain more muscle mass, like if you're using, if you're like lifting heavy weights, like that's, 
the point. And then when you start putting in more miles, when you're running more miles in the summer, like that extra kind of muscle that you put on kind of generally, you just run it off basically. But it's good to have a building portion of the year and a like, you know, um, not... I mean, muscle, it break, running long distances, it breaks muscle down. So like you can't have that year round because then you're just going to get into kind of energy deficiency and I think overtraining. Uh, so yeah. Right. In- interesting. So there's four things. Gosh, we shooting right along here. One, you mentioned that more might not be always better. And I mentioned uh, technique that runners tend to just run. That's all you run, 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 run. They're just training their cardiovascular systems instead of training their technique, which essentially all other sports do. And then thirdly, we mentioned strength training being part of running, particularly good for females. I mentioned particularly good for people who are beyond the age of fill in the blank, but certainly beyond the age of 40. I mean, technically, scientifically speaking, you need your strength will decrease dramatically. And then you just brought up periodization, which is most top people don't go the same all year round. And that's also, I, I should just add, kind of emotional and mental also, isn't it? It's not just physical. It's like you kind of need to emotionally just take your foot off the gas sometimes. Well, not- I, mean, I certainly do. I don't, I don't like that. And that's, I think this kind of gets into my next, the next thing that I always hear is that just because I'm a runner, I can only run and I mm-hmm. only need to run. And like we mentioned, you know, taking off the load, like I like to break up my year with, with skiing, with cycling, with doing like spending more time inside when it's dark outside and, you know, like getting into the gym rat routine. I like it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that something that really helped me and transformed me was, okay, I'm not a runner. I've never defined myself as a runner. I was a tennis player. Like before I got into all of this, I played all oh, sorts oh, Hillary, you're disclosing this on air. Wow. So I know. Is social media going to light up after this podcast? Like, I don't know. Hillary doesn't define herself as a runner. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. Maybe they will. But you know what? I challenge you because like at the same time, it's like I, I, I have never identified myself as a runner only because I identify myself as an athlete. And I think that's right. even more empowering because then if you're an athlete, you can do all of these other things. And it's kind of giving yourself permission to explore these other sports. And, you know, then training is just training, right? And you're spending time outside and doing sports and activity as you being an athlete is instead of getting stressed out that, oh my gosh, I'm not running today, then I'm not training or I'm not preparing for this race. Well, you know, that I think is just the like the wrong mentality to have. And I think it can kind of get you in trouble. It's gotten me in trouble in the past where then, you know, maybe I did too much. Like if I rode my bike a day, it wasn't enough. I had to go run too. And that's like, you know, that's, that's not it. It's like something that also <laughs> feeds the soul <laughs> with this, like right. having fun on a bike. <laughs> right. And for FKT of the year, you and I both talked to Anna Troop, who was the oldest in the top 10, by the way. And she said something on our, on air that we both pricked up our ear. She said she does her hard training on the bike because she can log, she can log the long, hard miles and you get off the bike, you actually feel fine. And if you, she tried to do at her age, the long, hard miles on foot, eh, she's going to mm-hmm. break down. So that was an interesting way to look at it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that I use the bike trainer. I love to like to sweat it out on a bike trainer hard workout. Um, and I think that's like I train a lot of masters runners, and you know, y- you lose foot speed. Like that's just what ends up happening as you age. And so if you can replace that and really get your heart rate up, you know, on a bike trainer or like on the bike you don't you then you get the benefit of a hard cardiovascular workout without the impact and i think it's just a win-win nice well you didn't buy peloton stock did you no i did not i i use Zwift with an actual real bike <laughs> <laughs> well good good because you would have lost uh 74 of your value if you had so you're a, you're a smart lady i appreciate that so only run and there's this person you might have heard of him he's from uh Catalonia. His first name is Killian. He lives in Norway now. And of course, he just skied, right? He was a schemo guy all winter long, and then he did pretty well on the trails when he got back into it. And when he was doing some of the, for him, faster things, you know, like the Mont Blanc Marathon and things like that, and Zagama, you know, he would do some running specific. You know, he'd have to really focus on turnover to get ready for that. But his focus meant six weeks. While during the winter season, he's doing schemo. And I think actually Killian, you know, I guess I have heard of him. <laughs> he himself wouldn't define himself as a runner, right? I think he's like a mountain athlete. And I think he, you know, he may be a skier because that's how he kind of got into it, a ski alpinist. Um, you know, I can't speak for Killian, but I've heard him say this in, in several interviews. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, diversifying yourself is probably the best, the best thing you can do. Well, thanks for saying that. that's kind of interesting because I've never mentioned this, but I too have never defined myself as a runner, even though I'm somewhat known that I avoid define myself actually as an, an adventurer. That's actually Love my that. forte. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are a very good adventurer. We've had some epic adventures together. Guys. Well, and thank you, you. You've, uh, you've uh, pawned me off on some ex- expert adventures themselves, Jared Campbell and Luke Nelson. I had an adventure uh, in Zion actually like a year ago today. It was it was great. But yeah, I mean, that that is first and foremost. Like I, you know, I always, I was actually talking about this today. It's like, am I really a sponsored runner? Like, I really don't feel that, that like I, like I train like any, any other athlete because I just want to go out and adventure and, you know, like create new routes, combine sports, have long days out there. And turns out you get pretty fit when you do that. Right. And I will say that, as I mentioned with Killian, when coming up on a race, I focus and I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. So if I'm coming up on something, I will literally, oh, I'm going to divulge the truth. I will get on a track and do yassos. I'll do some 800 meters, not for intensity, not really for speed, but just to get the biomechanics down. You know what I mean? So I got the turnover down. I'll do that like two or three times. You don't need to do that very much unless you're a you know five or 10K guy, then you kind of do. But for what we do, I'll do that two or three times just to get my biomechanics going. Yeah, I really like that. And same here. Like I will focus for a race. Like I'll do specific workouts, obviously specific long runs, but I don't do that year round. And I think for me, it's like the more you're the more you're a runner and the more you run, like and the more you're an endurance athlete, the more base that you have. So, you know, it's like more of a tune up. You don't I don't think I need more than six weeks, eight weeks. Right. Right. And what you get from the style that you have, in my opinion, is longevity. So if someone is just has this goal and just has that uh, 
that marathon training. Marathon training is really the ultimate. You know, we you mentioned ultra training, which is miles and miles. Marathoners make that look relaxed. You know, they're they don't walk out the door unless they're looking at their watch. Maybe I'm exaggerating <laughs> a little bit. I, I think don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard to keep that up for a long period of time. You know, I've met some. You know, living in Boulder, met some literally world class, world record holders who quit. They got a world record. And then two years later, they weren't running at all. Well, the, what you were describing, what I'm describing, my gosh, we're still doing it. And so there's a certain aspect, as Joseph Campbell said, of, you know, follow your bliss, you know, do what you love actually is not bad training advice. You know, and I think um, there's been, I mean, if we've looked at some of like the, the, um, the American record for the marathon, right? That just got broken. Kira D'Amato, she she took a huge hiatus from running because she got burnt out from it. She had a really bad experience in college and in high school from coaches. And I think just that grind. I mean, Ryan Hall, the best male Amer- Mar- male American marathoner of all time, uh, he is now like a professional bodybuilder. <laughs> have, you, have you seen a photo of Ryan? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I have. It's, <laughs> but it's not pinned up on your bedroom wall, is it? Well, maybe on the, on the, the ceiling of my van. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, something like that, I think it is. And he's sp- he spoken out, outwardly and openly about it that, you know, he had an eating disorder because he was constantly concerned about like power to weight ratio. I mean, that might not, that might be another bad training advice that I have is that, you know, in, in ultra running more is better from a miles standpoint, but then more is better. And then at the same time, less is more when it comes to nutrition and eating. Mm. And I think that that is the worst idea and worst combination ever. Interesting. Yeah. Well, if people are doubting what we're saying, you could Google photo of Ryan. He looks a little different than he looked when he did that uh, 204 at Boston. Uh, and he says he's, he feels great, by the way. But yeah. that's what's working for him. And he, he still trains his wife, Sarah, who's a right. total crusher. Oh, yeah. And, she, and she's not uh, – doesn't have the bodybuilder physique right now. So he still has that lightweight marathon physique. So, right. you know, it's your phase of life, what you want to pursue – and, and so what do you think about diet then? So you're thinking that the starvation diet is not that great of an idea or, or what are you saying? Here? Uh, yeah. And I think that, you know, maybe you can get away with it from a little bit, but you're either going to end up quitting, uh, being very depressed or like angry and hangry all the time. <laughs> and I think in the end, it doesn't really lead to longevity in sport. And for me, I want to be an adventurer. I want to be an athlete. I want to be a runner my whole life. And, um, you know, you need, you need to adequately fuel for, for these endeavors. Right. Come to think, I have a little side story here, <laughs> I, which I didn't forget. One of our early rides together, that da-da-da-da, let's meet here, da-da-da. And you said, great. And there will be candy. And that, that's literally what you said. You didn't say, well, are we going to bring arm warmers? Are we going to bring toe warmers? Are we going to bring water? No, you said, there will be candy. And so it's like, wow, this, this person's got her priorities sorted out for the day. <laughs> well, also, also because I know with you, Buzz, even if we're going to ride by a coffee shop, we're not stopping. So I better bring stuff. I better bring <laughs> right. snacks. So well, I, you have to also respect yeah. the ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stopping... Right. We all have our different styles and somehow stopping is, hmm, 
Well, at any rate, we'll just let that one go. That'll be a different podcast. We'll, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll explore no, that. Yeah. I mean, I think I think I would love to, but I also think it's so different between men and women. Women and men, how we how we deal with nutrition is just so much different. And um, I think if women try to mimic what men do, it can lead down kind of a you know bad path because our physiology is just different. Well, what? Let's elaborate on that. That's a very good point. How would it be different? So, for a woman listening to this podcast, what would you like to tell them? Uh, to not fast, do fasted runs, like point blank. Mm. (laughs) I think, uh, you know, there's a, there's a point, there's a point to it and it's, you know, to train yourself to be like fat adapted. Right. But women are, women already metabolize fat. We have a higher fat percentage in our bodies. It's one of the main differences in our physiology and our body, like our body makeup, body composition makeup. Um, you know, and that's from elite, you know, elite female, uh, you know, down to not an elite female athlete. Um, but yeah, we metabolize fat uh, better because we have fat, like, you know, in our blood available as a substrate to use as an energy source more so than men do. And so we don't really need that trainability. Of course, you can train it. You can train it. You need to use fat for fuel, um, you know, when you're running these ultra endurance races. However, uh, you, you can accomplish that in a two hour run, even if you eat breakfast before. So Gotcha. Interesting. Well, that was very well spoken. That was very informative. I appreciated that difference. I run a fair amount with Peter Backwin, and like I tend to, oops, here I shouldn't say this. I'm learning, I'm learning, but I tend to kind of ignore everything except what I'm doing, which is very poor form. Don't do that. And so I've had to discipline myself to eat, drink. But Peter, you know, one hour into it, he whips out his fig bar. That's what Peter does. He just he likes fig bars because they're not that sweet. They have fruit in it. And he just eats one right on the hour, one hour in, and he does that the next hour and the next hour and just keeps going. And they, there isn't this minimalism sense that you're not like, and here's, I'm just going to take this to one level further. Sometimes I think there's this What's the word, Hillary? Like, we are bad. Like, we're not good enough. And to not eat is better. There's this odd Puritan undercurrent in our culture that life isn't good. And so we should avoid things that are pleasurable or comfort-inducing. And that's, I kind of just leapt off to another level here. But at any rate, Peter and you just, you know, eat. Food is good. It's good for you. Calories out, calories in. Yeah. And, you know, I think, honestly, I do. I, I think it kind of relates back to that, this whole idea in running that, like, more is more is better and less is more. Like, the faster you're running, you always want that, even if you're prescribed an interval workout and you're supposed to hit a certain pace. Um, you want to go faster than that. You want to go, you want to go under it. Um, or, you know, it's like, well, what if I, you know, lighter is better. And that's not always the case. It's power to weight ratio. You know, it's like how, you know, and I just, I just think that I, I think it can be dangerous and it is, it's kind of like 
it's in the running culture, which can be a little bit detrimental, I think, to progress because there's not one body or size that fits all um, and leads to performance. Um, and your body, everyone's body is a bit different. And I also think that if you don't, if you try to trick your body into not eating, um, you know, your body can actually can can go into a starvation state where you break down muscle use that as fuel if you're not eating enough you break down fat you break down muscle which is not good and then when you are out of a starvation state like you start eating again then your body is like oh i'm gonna eat this food now but i haven't had it for a while and you know what happens is you store it as fat and so you can actually change your body composition even if you're trying to like quote unquote lean out eat less calories get faster and leaner you're actually working against your own body's physiology and your body will trick you right back. Well said. That's good. Trick you right back. Food is good. Every living entity takes in food. So we shouldn't think that not taking in food is somehow good. I appreciate that. Now there's a lot of different diets here. <laughs> now we can't do... We, we have to be judicious with this because you one cannot possibly solve the diet question. That 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 that, <laughs> that cannot be done. There's individuals are different. What they want to do is different, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some going back to our theme training myths. I think around diet. We have to talk about ones like starving yourself, not a great plan. Eating food a good plan. How about what type? What do you hear that you think is just not that good of an idea? You know, and so I agree. I think so my father is a food science human nutritionist and we've had the many conversations about diet and all this stuff. And so he's he's always been the one that's like been debunking things um you know at the at the kitchen at the dinner table since I was, you know, 9. Um and so the one thing that, that all nutrition you know, researchers can agree on is that there's no one diet fits all. It's just not possible. But the really right. cool thing is that no matter like where you live, your body can tell you kind of the things that you need. And, you know, if you look at cultural differences, like from around the globe, like people are getting in the nutrients that they need based on their kind of cultural and you know, regional diets. Um, but I think for running, especially it's sensationalized in the United States, I think adhering to one strict diet is never a good idea. Um, and of course we can, we might get like have some <laughs> people who unsubscribe or, or it's a controversial topic because I feel like diet can almost be like religion. Um, but I think um, generally speaking, especially as an ultra runner, if you're trying to do these ultra distances, having a diet that can be very um, exclude certain food groups or um, it's very strict I, I, I encourage people to kind of to think about that differently, that if you're if you're doing something that's an ultra sport, why in the world would you have a diet that limits you when you literally food and sleep are the two best recovery tools that you can have in your tool belt? So <laughs> that would that's my one my uh, so maybe you can, you know, infer my beliefs on on um, or my my tendencies for diets based on that. But uh, that yeah, that's kind of w where I want to leave it. <laughs> Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna put you on the spot and ask you to clarify something. You can you ask me; it's okay. You can ask. I can't. Me. Well, you, you just said you want to leave it there, so now I'm trying to decide if I can ask my next question, which you could pass on if you want. So, if I go into Whole Paycheck, aka Whole Foods, and I, I just love the, the, the salad bar because I don't want 
you know, I'm kind of the option guy. I want to get what I want, whether what someone wants to give me, rather than the menu, I want to just select what I want. And there's always this whole section for paleo. And so I'm saying, what's up with this? It's like, supposedly our ancestors didn't eat. And it's like, this is, okay, I'm just going to say something here. This is, this is no logic to it. I mean, literally, there's no science, there's no logic, there's no, they've done training tests and doesn't actually work. So what is your thought on this class, this iconic diet that has gone by the name of paleo? And it's also the keto diet. Well, the, uh, I guess the, the one liner that I want to say for this is if you're comparing yourself to a diet that supposedly a caveman ate, cavemen only live till they were 30. So <laughs> if that's your game plan, go for it. <laughs> okay. So no, but I, do, I, I am... do think that it's important to have, you know, fat, obviously as an endurance runner, you do use fat, but like the thing, the thing with this is that what people forget is that especially in an ultra endurance race, the fat that you're burning is endogenous. It's fat that you already have stored in your body. You're using as a substrate. It's not anything that you're ingesting in that moment. That is a key point. Very key point. So basically, and by the way, of course, I just did what you were somewhat reluctant to do, went out on a limb and stated my opinion. And so the hate mail might be coming in, but we already did the disclaimer, which is, you know, 10,000 runners, 10,000 diets, which actually that is scientifically valid. And like you said, there's no way it's, it's literally stupid to think there is one perfect diet for everyone. That's just not ever going to be a thing. But so I, did, I also, I did want to mention too, someone like Jeff, Jeff Browning, right? Like he, he is a huge supporter of like, you know, keto or like paleo, but he also, he doesn't just do that only like in, in races, he also eats carbs. So it's a balance of both. And it's figuring out kind of like what, what works for you. I'm de- generally um, against any, any extreme form. I'm not against a mix of things or like trying things out and seeing what works for you because you know, it, it, it could work. But I think generally speaking, an, an extreme um, mixed with an extreme like ultra running is probably not a good combination. Well, the scientific uh, uh, application you just mentioned, it was very sharp, I thought, that we were actually burning endogenous fat, which is already there. So if someone is ingesting fat or protein, you, that will become available like four hours later, which is not that big of a help. And so you kind of have to say, well, what is really taking place here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that might be helpful in a longer distance, right? Or like, you know, um, Steve House, he's, I mean, he's an amazing athlete. He's a great coach. I mean, you know, but if you think about that training for the uphill athlete, he really talks about fat adaptation and keto- and ketosis. And that's very important. And also like you think about it, if you're going out for a three-day expedition and and you want to carry calories with you, uh, you know, carrying some, being fat adapted and being able to, you know, to carry that weight and eat fat, like, but they're going to, you know, have time to, to ingest it, to like then have your body be able to use it and metabolize it. Um, but yeah, the, and I also think like as a runner, if you're trying to run fast, you run fast by, like, by using carbs. So you can't just forget those. Right. Well, I'll mention two things here. One is that it doesn't matter what you put in your mouth. You're burning glycogen. 
I mean, I, I kind of have to just cut to the chase here. You can put a Twinkie in, you can put in, you know, a goo, you can put in a sirloin steak, doesn't matter. That will be metabolized into glycogen, which is literally the only thing your cells can use. And so my personal logic is during an event, I want to be as close to that glycogen as I can get because anything past that is going to take extra work to digest and metabolize. So my race diet is completely different than my everyday diet. Maybe that's one way to look at it is that when I'm running, I want, I want it to be fast. I want to go hot. (laughs) I want sugar. Candy, buzz candy. (laughs) (laughs) Chocolate specifically. And then then every day, you, you don't want to do that because you you get diabetic. You get hypoglycemic. Yeah, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I'll, I'll just add on to this one, Hillary, going back to what we said about aging and strength and so forth, is that uh, the past, actually past year, as well as the past five or 10 years, I ingest concentrated protein with every meal. Yeah, and, and actually, just, there's, there's a lot of I science. I bumped it up. There's a lot of science yeah. with that. Is that actually even training with protein, but specifically making sure you get in protein um, after your, you know, your workout, it actually improves um, muscle recovery, right? Because you're kind of giving your body the substrate that it needs to rebuild. Um, yeah. So can't, yeah, can't just all be about, about carbs. <laughs> I'm a late adopter of the protein shake. It took me long, long time to come to around, but I am now a protein shake user. <laughs> I love it. Oh, man. But yeah, I mean, we could talk forever about these stuff, this stuff. (laughs) Well, we'll talk a few more minutes. Here's, uh, I've got another myth that I think is pertains to me, some of the things I've done, which is altitude acclimatization, right? Because, you know, Colorado, people talk about this all the time. People come out and do Leadville, the the town of Leadville is at 10,000 feet. Of course, Hard Rock, a iconic event that the course actually goes above 14,000 feet. Pikes Peak Marathon, that's got 7,000 feet of vert that goes up a 14er also. And when I'm hearing what people are doing, I'm a little aghast. I just don't think they're quite grasping what is <laughs> what is taking place here. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, so I have, I, I mean... I think people can kind of freak out about it a lot. And there's a lot of different mentalities about altitude training. Um, I mean, I'm, and it's not that just because I live in Colorado or you live in Colorado that we're just going to be better at altitude. It can actually be kind of a toss up and individualize with people's physiology. I know someone that a friend of mine, she's a great runner, like a 230 marathoner. And every time she goes above, you know, 8,000 feet, she gets sick no matter what. And she's born and raised in Colorado, but you know, there's, you know, there's ways to kind of, to get around it and like, you know, adapt and and train your physiology for it. Um, but I don't think it's necessary to, to do these huge blocks. Um, um, you know, um, or, you know, uh, like I think it is to, to learn what it's like to run at altitude and to be prepared for a race. You know, like if you're running Leadville for the first time, I would definitely recommend like going somewhere with high altitude and seeing um, how your body responds if you're, you know, how you can take in nutrition. Um, But it's not something that requires like, I don't think, you know, you need to do it for months and months and months at a time. Well, the science in that is very interesting. So I hear a lot of people kind of 
hey, I'm going to do a lead veil. I'm going to do Pikes Peak, do a hard rock. So I'm going to get out there like a few days in advance. So I'm, I'm acclimated. No, you're not. The science on this is, is actually quite surprising. You will feel the worse one to three days after coming here. That's your worst time. So for most people, it's actually better to show up that morning and just hit it. <laughs> I agree. This, this, is, or, this is counterculture. Is for sure. Basically, you, you, you show up and you, you just punch it out. And you're actually feeling fine. Your body actually responds to that. It decreases the blood volume, so increases your hematocrit level. But in one to three days, no, you're at your worst. So you actually have to come out here for more than three or less than one day. And I think also it's, it's so again, it's not like, oh, I'll get there two days before that. That's probably the, the worst thing. But I think it's like, it can be two weeks, right? So your body has one to two weeks, right? Like either show up the day of and then rage or wait like a week or two and then do the race so that you are, you know, um, acclimatized more. Mm-hmm. I've got something from Dr. Tom Hornbein, 1963 West Ridge Expedition. This guy, I mean, major cred and, and Tom person to person. This is this is quotable. He said, Buzz, it takes 19 days to make a red blood cell. And I went, what? And you know, the gears started clicking and whirring here. So there's two types of acclimatization. There's this you know, physiological type, your blood pH and your breathing, your respiratory rate and things like that. Like you said, at you know, three to seven days, you're pretty good on that. But actually to bump your hematocrit and get better performance, which means to utilize the less oxygen that's in the air, that's three weeks. Anything less than three weeks and nothing is happening in terms of your hematocrit. Between 21 and 28 days, a lot happens. That's why people like Reinhold Messner and you know, Killian, they went to Everest Base Camp for three weeks before they tried their oxygen lesses since. Because less than that, less is happening than what you might think. And I also think um, another thing with acclimatization is like intake of water, right? It's like you're, you're, you, you do need more water with all of this. And gen- generally speaking, because um, you're a little bit kind of de- more dehydrated um, at high altitude. But a really interesting technique that I, that I, and a training thing that you can do to, to help acclimatize, um, something that can actually help if you don't have like access to high mountains um, to train in, uh, getting in the sauna. Uh, heat training, like physiologically speaking, that's like kind of like a, a most similar stimulus to what happens when you go up um, in altitude. It's kind of almost like the thinning of uh, of your blood from, uh, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Surprisingly, that works. I think, uh, as you mentioned, there's, there's a complex set of circumstances that happen when you go up to altitude, like your friend who lives in Colorado goes above 8,000 feet and doesn't feel good. And the saying is always, you know, a thousand feet per day and go real slow. That's actually to prevent injury or disease, you know, HAPE, HACE, uh, AMS. And you definitely don't want to get high altitude pulmonary edema. This gets, you know, fatal. But those actually take like four days. This is really for mountaineering. For what we do for running racing, those are not a thing. You don't really have to worry about that. So you have to shift gears in terms of running. And I'm going to just put this out, go out on a limb as I tend to do. You know, at 12,000 feet in most weather patterns, 
At 12,000 feet, there's 40% less oxygen in every breath you take. That's for everybody. doesn't matter if you're acclimated or not. Everyone is breathing the same air. And I think what happens is if you go up to that elevation, you're suddenly you're breathing harder and you get freaked out. There's a certain psychosomatic effect and you think that you're screwed, you're doing well, you're dying. Everybody is breathing the same air and you're going to be moving slower, period, no matter how acclimated you are. And so relax, breathe a lot, probably slow down and things might be okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think there's a reason why some of the, you know, the the best runners, there's a lot of people that do high altitude camps. So if you really want to practice like running turnover, you have to go down to sea level because you can't really reach that same cadence when you're at high altitude. So there is, you know, or higher altitude and there, there is some sort of, you know, balance that has to be, you know, reached at, at that point. And you're right, like everyone is slowing down at that point. It's just, it's a matter of physiology. Right. That's the old train high. I mean, whoops, uh, sleep high, train low. Um, they've, they've kind of tuned that up. There's a little bit of a high, high, low theory right now, which is you, you sleep uh, high for that uh, acclimatization, that building your hematocrit. And you do your long, slow, your endurance training also high. But as you said, you do your tempo work low because otherwise you just you're not doing tempo work because you're moving too slowly. And recovery is actually easier at sea level. So, mm, <laughs> or below altitude, right? Right. right That's right. really the it's, hardest the hardest thing. If you're constantly training high and sleeping high, how are you recovering? You're, you're getting tired. A friend of mine, we were racing Mount Evans, not on foot. It was a bike race, Mount Evans hill climb. And he decided to go spend the night before on top of Mount Evans. This person who will remain unnamed, but he wrote a famous book on Mount Everest. And he also wrote another famous book on a school bus in Alaska, but I'm not going to tell you who this was. And he went to the top of Mount Evans and spent the night. And we're all going, dude, you, you, you don't really want to do this. Your, your body isn't going to have any positive adjustments in this span of time, but you will sleep poorly and wake up tired. Yeah, I don't think that that's the best the best training <laughs> mentality. It's like it's like it's also maybe it's this whole idea that like the the ti- the more tired you are, the better trained you are. I don't think so. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Well, Hillary, I think this has been good. I think we've touched on some of our favorite training myths. Anything else that strikes your mind, or is this good enough for now? I have lots of things, but like, I think we could probably rant on a five hour bike ride about this buzz. <laughs> okay. But, but uh, no, I think this is it for now. And no, I'm excited to see the kind of the feedback. Uh, but yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's fun to chat about. I think it's, it's awesome. But, and it's a lot of things that I've learned over, you know, my career through a bunch of recovery, um, a lot of reading. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's fun. Hopefully it gives some food for thought. Uh, literally for people (laughs) food for thought food for the thought and the body and the soul good one hillary i very much appreciate you it's always good to talk with you